I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. I hope you are not uh, uh, not uh, um, hope you don't have any issues with turning around in the Bible this morning. We're going to cover probably a lot of text, which is not normally uh, how we do things. Um, we normally stay in one text, and we might cross-reference a passage or two. But this morning, you're going to have to chase me a little bit because I. I was chasing a little bit in the sermon, and, and uh, we're going we're gonna to be using the Bible and, uh, and turning around a little bit uh, from text to text. Uh, we are in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3, but I'm going to begin reading just for context in the middle of verse 4 where it begins, if anyone else thinks. So Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to begin right there in verse 4. Read with me if you will. Uh, as, or at least follow along as I read. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And now the text before us this morning, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature, have this mind. And I'll stop there uh, in that verse. So again, verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. And that's really where I started to chase rabbits. So you see, I did not make it very far without getting distracted into the text. And so we might be here for a week or two. It's interesting to me... Um, what he is saying when he says, not that I have already attained. And that's really where my distraction began. We know what he means. Now, to attain something means to, to grab it, to lay hold of it, to possess it. We know what he means when he says, I have not yet attained. I've not yet grabbed whatever this thing is. We know what the thing is from the previous verses, if you look at it. 
He says in verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So he's saying, I have not yet attained to the resurrection, that I've not yet grabbed hold of that. And he could mean several things by that. I haven't attained already, but I am in the process of attaining resurrection from the dead. Now, when he says, I have not attained resurrection from the dead, clearly he's still living in the flesh and blood. So I think he means more than simply, um, I haven't yet, you know, rose from the grave. But I think for Paul, resurrection from the dead is both real and symbolic of what it means to be perfectly conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. Because at the resurrection of the dead, you and I will be without sin forevermore. We will not deal with corruption. We will not deal with selfishness. All the things that screw you up in your life will not be dealt with anymore. Creation will be restored to perfect order as it was when God made it and said, this is good. At the resurrection of the dead, things will be set right for us. And when he says here, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, I think he has more in mind here than simply, I want to rise from the grave, although not less. He definitely has that in mind. But he is speaking here to what we might call sanctification. That is the work of God in us. As scripture promises us, God will complete what he has began in us. He will bring us to be conformed to the image of his son. And Paul knows, despite all his progress, he is not yet what he will be. He has not attained. And then I got hung up on the word perfected. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Now, when I use the word perfect, what I generally mean is without any blemish, without any, you know, if, I, if, if, if a pitcher pitches a perfect game, there is no blemish in the scorebook. There is no walk. There is no error. There was no base runner. No one advanced a single base. They have a no-hitter, which is different. You can get a guy on base without getting a hit, a walk and error, but a perfect game is something different. 27 people came to the plate and 27 people sat down. There was no blemish. But here, the idea of perfection means more than that. It's the idea of completion, of something being finished. And this is where we're going to go on a bit of a rabbit trail. Because when the Bible speaks of this kind of perfection, uh, it speaks of something beyond mere blamelessness or flawlessness. The word here, perfected, is teleao. Maybe saying it wrong. I'm not, I don't speak Greek. Neither do you, by the way. But It's from the root word telos, telos. And that means the end or the finishing of something. And this is not a rarely used word in Scripture. It's used repeatedly in Scripture. The idea of perfection or finishing or completion. And as I started to, 
to go deeper into the text and to think about this, it led me to Hebrews chapter 12. So if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to look at the first two verses of that chapter. Paul is saying, I am not finished. My work is not complete. God is not done with me. And I thought in my head of these two verses, and I turned there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which comes on the heels of the testimony of all of the faithful people who have served God, described in chapter 11 prior, and now we get to chapter 12. Therefore... We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people who have faithfully served God and are now in heaven, in paradise with Him, we have a cloud of witnesses watching us as we live. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And just me dealing with some things this week started to get choked up there. Because it's an acknowledgement by the author of Hebrews that you can be a Christian and you can love God and you can be serious about serving Jesus and still have sin that easily ensnares us. And the word easily is really what got me. It would take a lot of pride for someone to say, Sin doesn't have any grip in my life. There's no hold there for me. It's actually very difficult for sin to make any headway in me. But it's humble and right for Christians to acknowledge just how vulnerable we actually are to temptation, to lusts and desires and passions around us, to selfishness and selfish living. And the author of Hebrews says, let's... Since people are watching, (laughs) which I don't know about you, but most of the time when I surrender to sin, I'm not considering that anyone is watching, but he is talking about a heavenly witness here. Since we have, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every burden, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is a, the idea is there's a course now. There is a, there's a course and we're supposed to complete this. And, and the weight of this world and sin which easily ensnares us, it, it trips us up and, so that we stop running. We don't stay on course. And he's saying let's lay aside the weight and let's lay aside the sin And let's run with endurance now, not giving up. Let's be tough about this. The race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. In other words, he says, I know this is a difficult thing to require of you. That you set aside every weight. That you lay aside sin, which is very easy to to grab hold of us. I know it's hard to tell you this, that you should run this race with endurance. But maybe not so hard if you look unto Jesus. In other words, he's saying here there is an example 
that we should look toward here. There is a, a pace setter in this race, if you will look unto him. And this is what he says of him. The author and the finisher of our faith. And that word finisher is from the same root that we read in Philippians. Tell us. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. That is true on a grand scale, doctrinally, theologically. In fact, Jesus has literally taken it upon his shoulders to write out the gospel for us with his own life that he lived. To begin our faith, as it were, by living in the flesh, by saying no to sin and temptation at every turn, by going to the cross. He is literally, theologically, the author and finisher of our faith. But it is also personally applicable in that Jesus is the one calling us to him and salvation and both seeing us through personally to the finish line. Paul is saying, I have not completed, I have not attained, I have not perfected. I'm in the process, but I have not finished this race. And the author of Hebrews is telling us, look unto Jesus, because if you are a Christian, it began with him, and it will end with him, which is powerful stuff. Now, it says in Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So, if I understand what he's saying, when we have trouble that makes us want to stop running and pressing on. We should look unto Jesus, who continued to press on in the midst of his own trouble for the joy that was before him, ahead, in the future. In other words, Jesus was not living his life for right now. He was suffering, as the scriptures say, a man of sorrow, but endured that, still pressing on and running the race that was set before him because he saw in the future joy. He saw in the future happiness, which is not the same as a get-out-of-hell-free card, which is not... Jesus did not see eternity as merely the avoidance of judgment. He saw real joy ahead. But he had, he had to run this race to get there. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And then we get this added here. Despising the shame. Which I take to mean that Jesus is more honest in his word describing what he went through than many of us are when we go through difficulties. Because when you and I often go through difficulties, we often say things like, I don't care what that person thinks. Or, this is going to happen to me, but it's not really that big of a deal. Or whatever. We trivialize sometimes what we go through when we're going through something hard. Jesus didn't trivialize any of it. He despised the shame that he went through. 
It was not easy. It was humiliating. It was terrible. He endured. Though he despised the shame of it. And now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He finished it. And when I read that, my mind went to the cross. Where before his death... In John, we hear the words of Jesus when he says, it is finished, which is also the same Greek word here. The same Greek word. Tell us. It is finished. At the root, the idea of completion, of finishing, of reaching the end is there each time. And I thought of Revelation twenty-two thirteen, When I read, that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. I hear Jesus in Revelation 22 saying, and this is a quote, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and Omega. In case the metaphor is lost on you, he follows that up. The beginning and the end. And the word end there is telos. The finish. And he says, and the first and the last. That's Jesus describing himself. And my mind just fills with a, a lot of points that I, um, that I, I just want to sit on and think on and preach and, and, and shout about because they are big deals. And this is in my mind from last night in an, in an adult group that we, we've had at my house for a little while. It's just in my mind and I can't help but say it because we're talking about creation. I can't help but, but, but say there is an end to sin and to fallenness and to evil and to suffering and to sorrow. God did not create the world vulnerable to these things with the intention of leaving these things in his creation forever. There is an end coming to all of that. There is no end coming to the immortal soul of men and women made in the image of God, but there is an end to the current state of creation that we live in. I just can't help but say that. That's not the main point this morning. But it's in my head. This, this morning I woke up and, and I caught an article about a celebrity who, while imploring people to go vote, and this is not a message about voting, I've never preached one of those and I never will, Lord willing. But while imploring people to vote said, we, it's upon us to go make our own future. So you got to go vote. You are incapable of making your own future. That doesn't mean you shouldn't vote. But if your hope for the future is in the ballot box, you have false hope. There is an end coming to suffering on this earth, and it's not in the elections, and it's not in public office, and it's not in scientific research, and it's not in world peace. It's in the return of Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and he is the end. That is where my hope in the future is. And I just thought it was, it was in one of the commentaries that I read as I study and prepare. Commentaries are usually very studious books that talk about language 
and that cross-reference texts and that dig deep into doctrine. But you can tell when you read a commentary when the person writing the commentary just can't help himself but to start preaching. You can tell because it sticks out. And here's a commentary on the Philippians 3 passage and all of a sudden this Bible commentator is preaching and he's saying this is a message of hope for a world without a future. And he goes on and he says this is a message of hope for a world that spends hundreds of millions of dollars on cosmetic surgery trying to preserve their current state because the future for them is bleak. And he just starts preaching in the middle of his commentary. And I don't know how the editor didn't say, hey, you're just here to say what it says. But he can't help himself because this is a hopeless world. And if your hope is merely in improving your life now or preserving your life as it is, that is a dark conclusion that you are headed to. And this made me chase Jesus, who I think I have biblical license to chase because of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, saying, looking unto Jesus. So take your Bibles and turn to John 10. I'm not going to take us all the way through John's gospel, but we are going to read the Bible, portions of it in John's gospel. This is Jesus towards the end of his life. He has endured. He has run the race. But if it were ever true of a person that the final lap is the toughest, you have to say that of the Lord. You have to say that of the Lord. Because of the, the juxtaposition of them singing Hosanna, here is the Messiah, and then within a week, crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus is human. Jesus has emotions. And the, the roller coaster of the final week of his life, that's a tough finish. That's a tough finish. That's not a downhill coast. That is a tough race to finish. And this is from those final days of the Lord's earthly life. This is John 10. I just want to read a passage beginning in verse 7. Look at how frequently he is pleading with people. He doesn't do this during his entire ministry with this kind of intensity. But look at how frequently he is pleading with people to recognize who he is and what's on the line. Listen to this. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. You hear the repetitiveness. You hear the repetition here. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Hear it again, the repetition now in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the simple follow-up, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Can you hear the endurance to what is coming? The acknowledgement of the death that is coming. It'll be repetitive. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who doesn't own the sheep, a hireling sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
That's Jesus not finishing the race, by the way. That's what he says. I see a hireling, if I were merely a hired servant, I would see the danger and I'd abandon the race. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own sheep as the father knows me. Even so, I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must also bring. Praise God, that's me, a Gentile. And they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life. That's three times, by the way, so far, just in this text. I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it again. That's the joy that is before me. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself four times. I have the power to lay it down five times. I have the power to take it again. This command, he does not see the home stretch here as optional. He has to finish the race. This command I've received from my father, therefore there was a division among the Jews saying, among these sayings, many of them said, he has a demon, he's mad. What would you say about someone talking like this? Others said, many of them said he has a demon, he's mad, why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Look down at verse 24. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone stretch them, snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Can you hear? What I hope you hear is the focus of Jesus as he nears the finish line. He knows he is coming to the end. He knows the challenge that's ahead. And he is intensely focused on what's ahead. Look at John 11. We know how it starts. If you don't, Lazarus is sick, okay, and Jesus gets report of it. It says when Jesus heard that, verse 4, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God. Then they, they find out that Lazarus has died. He tells his disciples that Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says in verse 15, at the knowledge of Lazarus dying, he says, I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there to heal him so that you'll believe in me? He travels to go visit Lazarus, and you remember the two sisters have two different reactions. Martha has a reaction of sorrow over her brother Lazarus's death mixed with hope, sorrow and joy. You see that in her response. Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. That's theologically correct. That is her dealing with sorrow, with joy of Lazarus's and hers ultimate resurrection in Jesus. That's not wrong. And yet Jesus is with her. And it, it does not mean merely that. Our resurrection will come when Jesus is with us. 
Lazarus experienced something akin to this because Jesus was there. At the return of Christ, we will experience the same thing. Then the dead in Christ will rise. Mary has a different reaction. It's all sorrow. There's no hope. There's no, there's no, I know he'll rise. It's just, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't be dead. And this is the theme at the end of Jesus' life. Death, resurrection. Death, resurrection. It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary who's exhibiting hopelessness here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. It says in verse 35, he wept. He knows Lazarus is coming out of the tomb. What is his problem? His problem is this is sorrow without joy. This is how the world dies. This is how lost people die. This is how hopeless people are buried, and it is sad. They get to the tomb, and again, there are people publicly mourning and wailing, and again, it says in verse 38, he came to the tomb, again, groaning in himself. We know what happens. In verse 40, he says, did I not say that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Take the stone away, and Lazarus comes forth, and Lazarus lives. John 12. In John 12, I just want to point out a few verses so you see them. Look at how frequently Jesus says, now is the end of the race. This is the end of the race. This is the end of the race. Um, verse 7, when he's anointed for burial, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. This is when Mary puts the, Mary now, same Mary as the previous chapter who was hopeless before, now she's pouring out this, this expensive thing of wealth on Jesus. Gentiles come and they say, we want to see Jesus, we want to see Jesus. And, and he says, I, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit, much grain. In other words, I'm going to die and then the Gentiles will be able to come. But he doesn't leave them hopeless. Look at 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Jew, Gentile. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. The word now means um, at the end here. At this point. And it's repeated. That same three-letter Greek word over and over again. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this hour. It's right here. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Verse 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. If I'm lifted up from the earth, crucifixion, then I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. Verse 42, it's, it's a strange verse. It says, there are many people who believed in Jesus among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess that they believed in him. And do you see why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. What a small concern to keep someone from Jesus. I'm going to be embarrassed. 
what a dangerous thing our pride is. Verse 49, Jesus saying, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who gives me, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. Verse 50, I know that his command is everlasting life. Verse chapter 13 is filled with the same stuff. Chapter 14, the same stuff. A couple of places where it stands out. Verse 31 of chapter 13. Now the Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in Him. He tells His disciples. Verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. Again in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me. Peter says, I'll follow you, Lord, to the very end, even if it costs me my life. And he says, no, you won't. In verse 38, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. Peter could say with Paul, he has not attained yet. His race isn't done. In John 14, he transitions immediately from saying that Peter will deny him three times to comfort him and say, let not your heart be troubled. I don't know about you, but if someone told me I was going to deny Jesus three times before the end of the day, my heart would be troubled. Especially if Jesus was the one telling me that. And immediately he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in in me. Verse 3. Listen to the assurances here. These are all comfort. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's all comfort. Verse 25 says, I'm leaving the Holy Spirit with you. I'm not leaving you alone. Verse 27, I leave you my peace, not as the world gives peace, but the peace that comes from God. Verse 28, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back. If you love me, you'll rejoice. I'm going to the Father. Verse 29, now I've told you before it comes, so when it does, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. That, this is happening, that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me commandment. So I do. And under that so I do, I just have the idea, so I do. I press on. I keep running. I continue going. This is the example we're supposed to look to. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In, in one respect, we can boil it down to the same thing you and I face. Jesus had a command of how he should live and what he should do. And he was going to do it. The Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And then in John 19, uh, we won't read the text, but the subtitle for it is, is the best subtitle. Uh, I, you know, subtitles are not inspired. They're, uh, they're added for help. But the subtitle is The King on the Cross. 
And it says in verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. This is echoes of Paul in 2 Timothy. I've run my race. I've finished the course. I've poured out my life. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown. <laughs> I'm done. It's, 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 it's over. Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. He's offered a drink. He says in verse 30, it is finished. This is what Paul is saying. Literally in Philippians, when he says, I've not finished yet. I've not finished yet. Jesus finished. Paul finished. You and I are still running. You're not done. How do we go on? Well, I have more to say about that next week, but just verse 13 and 14 of Philippians 3 is enough to read today. I'll just read it to you. How do you continue? Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended anything, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I press toward to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some of you are here this morning, and when you think of what it means to be a Christian, you see the obstacle of your own sin. You see the way that sin has easily ensnared you in your life. Some of you are Christians, and you're dealing with that right now. I hope you are encouraged by this. One thing I do, letting go of what is past and looking forward to what God has called me to, I press on. When Paul says, I let go of what's past, he means the context of what he's already said in Philippians 3. And in those things are all of his great accomplishments. Remember, he gives the long list of great things. If anyone would boast in the flesh, I boast more so, but I'm letting go of all those accomplishments. But also great shame for Paul. Because he says in that list, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Would it be easy for you to let go of your past if you had formally gone around locking up Christians, separating families, and seeing people put to death? That's what's encapsulated in his idea of persecuting the church. If Paul can let go of that and look ahead toward Christ, you can let go of whatever sin has its claws in you today. You can be free of whatever shame or guilt you're dealing with. How you have lived to this point today does not need to be how you live tomorrow. Humble yourself before the Lord. Embrace joy with the sorrow of this world. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Steve, you can come forward. Father, I know that I've been long and I push the limits of what we can stay attentive to and I'm sorry if I've done a poor job. I trust your spirit with the work in your people. But, but I pray, Father, that you will give us strength, real strength, to let go of what we have to let go of, every sin that ensnares, former shame, former guilt, as well as former prideful celebrations and milestones that used to define us and that now with Paul we might say I count all these things 
as rubbish for the sake of knowing your son Jesus. Father, I ask with with your mind towards discipline and, and love as a father toward us that you would carve away all of the pieces of our lives that do not belong until the clay that we are resembles the finishing work of our master. That when our lives are finished, you will look upon the work that you've done in our lives, in in our offering to you. And say, with a sense of pleasure, it is good, it is finished, it is done. Help us to embrace this idea of being your workmanship. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.